welcome back to the Movie Bubble Podcast. This week, you've got myself, Colin, and I'm joined by Nick. Uh, we're going to be breaking down some more WandaVision, um, as well as some new releases and some uh, just fun watches. Uh, that Nick, in particular, has uh, been going through these past this past week. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into WandaVision. Uh, so we got the penultimate episode. It dropped... Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily dropped bombs um, in, in the way that a lot of the past episodes have, um, but it really painted a fuller picture of Wanda, who I think in all these movies that she's been in, she's been just kind of on the sidelines, um, and her arcs have more served someone else than they have served her. And with this episode, we really got to spend some time like just building up Wanda, even if it was parts of her we already knew about, um, just in terms of plot, it really shed a lot of light on just like who her character is and why we wound up in this kind of wacky sitcom format and um, just just what her process has been through all this uh, while also kind of removing some of the guilt um, and, and basically just like taking her through a 40 minute long therapy session. Um, this was the longest episode so far, still not an hour, like all the uh, the internet people were convinced uh, the last three episodes were going to be. Um, but it was it was really, really good. And I, I think a lot of people are like fixating on just like some of the vision moments, particularly the post credit scene, the, like one of the quotes he had. Um, but this was Wanda's episode and she killed it like Elizabeth Olsen killed it. Wanda killed it. Um, this this if it's not my favorite of the series, it's it's pretty kind close pretty high up there yeah one of the most perverse therapy sessions ever right because we just have Catherine Hahn just using all of these moments in uh scarlet witch's life for her own benefit to figure out to get more power so um yeah it's it's interesting I, at, at first i was struggling with it a little bit because it felt like it felt pretty similar in terms of um how it uh, shows its cards to episode four, which I think was the one where we sh- we were shown the swords, the sword side side of um, what's happening in Westview. So in that sense, I feel like there's kind of right. It's these four episode arcs where we have all this build up, what's happening, and then all right, let's retrace our steps and explain everything. And so we had episode five, six, and seven, and then episode eight, kind of go back and explain everything. Um, so in that sense, I struggled with it a little bit and, but I do agree because throughout all of these movies, you're right. Scarlet, Witch has just been there. And I do appreciate how Catherine Hahn, who's just, who's just the best, she's the most amazing thing ever or person ever. And she just is just making fun of Elizabeth Olsen so like badly. And she even says like, Oh, your accent, it really comes and goes, doesn't it? <laughs> Cause that's been the whole critique on Elizabeth Olsen throughout all these movies is where like that accent just is just all over the place. And at one point they just kind of like forget about it for her character. But um, yeah, I was interested. I think it was really, really interesting. And um, yeah, well, I think we'll get more into it later, but the vision moment when they're on the bed together, oof, that's just really good. That's just really, there's really good writing in that scene. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of this episode takes place either inside of conversations um, from Age of Ultron or like adjacent to what was going on in that movie. And so I've seen a lot of people on the timeline this week are like, you know, what, really Age of Ultron wasn't that bad. Like we understand it so much better now. <laughs> and so I think it also like opens up a conversation of like these later works 
going back and retroactively making something else better uh, because we know something that wasn't actually a part of the movie then, but Marvel can pretend like, yeah, this was here the whole, this whole time. Like Wanda's always had this nuance. Okay. It's not something that we added six years after that movie came out. Um, But, but I do really like how just how personal it's like, we got to spend time with her um, as a kid. And we got to see that, that moment that um, is kind of, her and Pietro's big, ah, this is why we became terrorists uh, speech in Age of Ultron, where she's talking about how um, she sees the the Tony Stark missile just sitting in front of them for like two days. And we got to see uh, their parents get blown up. And um, we got to see the, I, I mean, we still really didn't see anything of what actually happened, but like when she goes and gets her powers or um, turns out amplifies her powers with the Mind Stone, which is just like, a big flash of CGI light, um, but it was still still a good character moment for her um, walking up and just like embracing it. Yeah, there's definitely there's still definitely moments of emotional um, depth that I don't think Marvel wants to touch here because right because they become terrorists for and then um, that's just like, like yeah yeah they were bad they had a bad time in their younger younger days don't worry about it they're heroes now and I feel like they'll just never ever want to touch that with as much depth as uh, may be necessary but um yeah it's i do agree and um i think there's just a lot there's a lot of really good filmmaking in this uh, episode as well uh you think this movie starts in the, during the salem witch trials which is just kind of insane if you if you explained the plot of this episode and just beat by beat you would say this sounds like a horrendous mess but I think they blended it really nicely. There was some really slick editing moves, um, especially because uh, Elizabeth Olsen, or there's the younger version of Scarlet Witch, is acting out in these scenes, and they'll do a, like a camera wraparound, and it'll be um, older Elizabeth Ol- or old, older Scarlet Witch reacting to this trauma that she kind of hidden down and in, in, down in her psyche for so long. I think there's there's a lot of really good stuff in that sense too. So. Um, I'm excited to see what the finale brings. It's kind of crazy to think that it's already over, but um, it's this episode was really, really good, and I'm excited to see what Catherine Hahn does and how she just chews the scenery again in the final episode. And I guess we have even more synthetic vision. I don't know. <laughs> like, is he super synthetic vision now, or is he just regular vision? I have, I have many questions, and I think Marvel just keeps me on the hook of wanting more. That's how, that's how they've built this empire, I guess into the vision verse Um, (laughs) but yeah because we've got like that that vision reveal so there's like actually really two vision reveals because you have um there's like a direct scene where they're like okay this is exactly where the vision that we've seen for the past eight episodes came from out of wanda's brain sort of i I still don't really understand what happened yeah i don't either i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) and then at the end of the episode they did some uh techno babble and like created another vision out of the old vision parts um and it's maybe probably ultron is what the internet seems to think i think that's probably pretty plausible um but there's definitely two visions they're gonna punch each other it should be pretty great um no complaints here yeah there's definitely it's gonna be bad vision versus good vision there's i hope they do the since we're doing all this the sticky stuff from sitcoms i hope that 
the two visions stand next to each other and they do the thing where it's like, no, I'm the real vision. Don't listen to that one. <laughs> and then Scarlet Witch has to decide which one to kill. I hope that happens because that would be the most gloriously terrible thing, but it would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I did like they did. Um, I think kind of play a little bit with the unreliable narrator um, shtick that we've seen, though, though not with Wanda, um, but with Hayward, who's sort of the main villain. Um, at, at this point, uh, but just showing that, like, hey, you know, Wanda didn't actually come in and steal the Vision's corpse; like, she left, and and so now they have the reanimated corpse Vision. That I don't know might sound like James Spader. Like, what do they do if it is Ultron, but they couldn't pay James Spader again? Like, you just get, I don't know, who who's the who's the closest <laughs> you can get to James Spader? <laughs> I mean, they paid Robert Downey Jr. 50 million to do two scenes in Spider-Man Homecoming or however much they did. So I think, I think they can drop the bag to get a few uh, voice lines from James Spader. (laughs) Um, But this episode also really reaffirmed my suspicion that Agatha is not the villain. Like I still have yet to see her do something that I'm like, Oh yeah, that's pretty evil. Or especially compared to like, you know, Wanda enslaving an entire town of like 3000 people. I'm I'm still pulling for Agatha's not a bad guy. Um, I'm feeling pretty alienated in my friend group because everyone's like, "Are you stupid?" But <laughs> I I still haven't seen her do anything evil. All she's done is take Wanda to therapy. Um, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, whatever keeps Catherine Hahn for, around for longer is fine by me because casting her as a as an ancient witch or i guess she's not ancient but very very old witch to put in all of these new iterations of the mcu is just lovely to me that just sounds like the best thing ever to have more Catherine hahn showing up in all of these movies from here on out so i hope she stays around yeah so uh come friday everyone's gonna have egg on their face when it turns out she's actually a good guy and then she and wanda and maybe real maybe some like semi-corporal colored vision uh beat up james spader vision so (laughs) i hope i can't wait for this episode to just age poorly when she becomes the villain and everyone can make fun of you but um (laughs) i just wanted to mention one quick thing and i know that this this line is already um just captured the hearts and minds of mcu stands everywhere but i think it's a really good piece of writing that is indicative of um the episode of a whole which is where um vision and vision and scarlet witch are on the um bed together in the avengers compound and he does the the line where it's what what is grief if not love persevering um it's on the nose but it's it's also just really nice it's a really sweet kind of emotional like i guess text that the MCU movies don't really ever encroach on. And I, I mean, Paul Bettany is just really good. Uh, he delivers that line perfectly. I just think it was one of the, it was one of the few moments in the MCU where I was genuinely touched. Um, I just, I just thought it was really good. So I wanted to give a tip of, tip of the cat tip of the cap. I can't speak uh, to that as well. Yeah. And I think this is where the praise for age of Ultron comes in. Cause I think one of the things in that movie that, that works well, and that in this particular example, I'd say even works a little bit better than in the original Avengers movie is um, the visions dialogue with Ultron at the end of the movie, where they're just kind of both reflecting on um, like, what's, what's the point of humanity? Like, cause they're basically the same, right? They're both 
androids created to, uh, you know, blow stuff up. But um, he just has like, and, and he probably has about one every movie that the visions in where I'll just like drop a pretty good line that kind of reflects on something. And you're like, wow, I didn't expect it to get that deep after I just watched a giant uh, city fall from the sky and get destroyed with a hammer. Um, but it happens every now and then. It's really nice when it does. Yeah, what's the line in Ultron where he's like, I don't know, but I was born yesterday because <laughs> talking about humanity. That was a really good line. That movie's a mess, but that was a really good line in there. And then he has the one in Civil War where he's talking about like the causality loop of when more heroes are showing up, that means that the the ad like the the adversary and that like the evil is just gonna compound itself as well and to kind of match it. So um yeah. It's he has this weird way of because obviously the character is synthetic is a really good way of like doing these like sneakily, like thoughtful, um, thoughtful, like super like intelligent, but also just kind of just smart and sweet lines in there. So he ball bet and he's low key, the MVP, the MCU in my mind. And <laughs> I feel like WandaVision has kind of cemented it because same thing with Scarlet Witch, the vision character has kind of been a whole lot of nothing, but he's just really, really good that you kind of just don't care sometimes. But um, yeah, it's just that line. The line was just really, really good. It just hats off to them. Yeah, when I think you know Paul Bettany's been doing this as long as Downey Jr. I mean, he hasn't had to suit up for the whole That's time, true. but he's been around since 2008. And and even as Jarvis, he would drop just like little bits like that. And is when he was just like a disembodied British voice. Um, so it's yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that they find a way to to bring Vision out of this. And I mean. He's a robot who is currently alive twice in the MCU, so I would like to see more of him um, going forward. But, you know. Yeah, it's... But to circle back to this, I will I will never get on the train of, okay, now Ultron is good, or all of these <laughs> other movies are better now, because the no. MCU is like, no, just kidding. <laughs> all this depth was there this entire time. Like, I will never do that. I'm never getting on that train. So, sorry, MCU stands. Yeah, I think uh, retroactively, like, adding context to movies, and I think you see this a lot with the Star Wars movies, uh, where with, like, 4, 5, and 6, of like, oh, well, you see the way that Han looks at Chewie, and then Chewie looks at Luke is actually, uh, because in the prequels, uh, and they're just like, there's yeah. all sorts of these insane it, It's ridiculous. Or they do it with, um, particularly with Revenge of the Sith, after the Clone Wars show came out, they're like, there's, the internet is just littered with, like, love for the prequels because of the show which i think the show's pretty solid and i think if if you try to force it into revenge of the sith it's like yeah it gives it more depth but it wasn't there in 2005 so you can't be like i love revenge of the sith because of all these things that didn't happen in this movie um, yeah and i think the same thing applies to age of ultron here like yeah it's nice that we're getting things more rounded out six years later but that doesn't mean that Age of Ultron is somehow magically like, you know, it was here all along. This isn't this isn't like in the movies where the girl takes off her glasses and you're like, wow, Age of Ultron. <laughs> Age of Ultron is the 90s rom-com of Marvel movies. Where she was the nerdy girl that was attractive this entire time. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just an excuse for bad screenwriting. Like that like Age of Ultron is a mess of a movie, so I don't really I, I I can't remember the last time I watched it, honestly. So <laughs> I can't say I can't say that WandaVision is making that movie better because it'll always be a turd. So <laughs> we'll always have WandaVision. 
Um, but yeah, so so this coming week is the finale. Um, should be pretty explosive. Should be pretty well rounded. Um, like I think this has been a very solid TV effort so far. Um, as long as they don't Luke Skywalker it uh, like they did with the Mandalorian finale, then I'm I'm gonna be satisfied with this little nine episode limited series. Yeah, and then we'll have um, Winter Soldier, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which kind of just looks like bad boys, which, sure, um, I guess that, that sounds kind of fun to me. <laughs> I guess I'll keep watching. They, the, the mouse still has my money. Uh, but yeah, that is, uh, that is Disney+. Plus. And then we'll move on to uh, some, some very, very lower tier works uh, that also <laughs> debuted, not from the House of Mouse. Um, although the House of Mouse is mentioned in the one I'm going to talk about. Um, but Cherry and Tom and Jerry uh, also released this week. And um, Cherry was under review embargo for a while. And then when it lifted, it just got destroyed. And I think Tom and Jerry was pretty much the same place. But everybody seemed a little happier to destroy Cherry. Whereas Tom and Jerry, they're like, oh, I, I don't want to have to say this. But... <laughs> Yeah, um, I saw Cherry, which I think is in limited theaters. It started on Friday, limited theaters, and I think it comes to Apple TV Plus on March 12th, I believe. But this movie's really bad. Is This movie's straight buns. Like, <laughs> it's one of the more like impressively bad awards, like hopeful movies that I've seen in a really long time. I would put this in the same category as, as your Collateral Beauties and just like those really awful movies that try to be about a lot of things but are just like fly like like fall flat on their faces um but yeah this is this is tom holland and the russo brothers teaming up once again trying to get away from avengers and spider-man and whatnot and trying to do this really grimy uh, grisly movie about the the opioid uh, epidemic which um i think it was based off of a book by nico walker which was like a really it was like a really big deal when it came out a few years ago um, but it's based on his life and he um, somewhat and he went he was over in the Iraq war and then came back and he became addicted to pills and started robbing banks to kind of fuel his addiction. And it's the potentially it's this really harrowing, sweeping story about the kind of like the pitfalls of America. And you can kind of get the sense that the Rooster brothers see the importance in that story. Um, apparently they had like close um, like ties to the story and it, and it touches them on a personal level. But um, they try to make this story as big as possible. So there's like they're doing all these crazy, uh, like um, aspect ratio changes and all the, like these stupid stylized things to make it feel as important as possible. And it just sucks all the humanity out of this movie, and it just makes it look ridiculous. There's a few scenes that will become memes when people see it. Um, although it's on <laughs> Apple TV Plus, so I don't know if people will see it. Um, but there's um, an already infamous. Um, um, asshole shot that's in this movie where um it's basically i tweeted this out but it's it's pretty comparable to the warden in shawshank redemption and looking um through the tunnel um that andy dufresne escapes through and it's when he goes to basic training and like it's the army doctor looking in tom holland's ass it's one of the most ridiculous things you'll see in a movie in a really long time um and when he goes to rob banks like the name like of all these banks are changed like instead of city bank it's shitty bank like, get it because capitalism uh so this movie it just takes like the worst smasher 
like smash your face in with a hammer like approach to all of its like ideas that it has and it just robs it of any possible power it could have because i think there is a there is like a another universe where this movie is a really interesting and big deal and kind of is like a big sweeping epic on the line of like goodfellas and all these other really like kind of like damning american stories um but it just takes those stylistic ideas and brings new ideas to them. Uh, so um, I guess this is my warning for all of you. Don't watch Cherry <laughs> or just watch the memes when they come out because there's going to be a plenty because this movie tries some things that are just hilariously bad. They're really, really bad. Um, I can't like this is it's crazy because this is the movie that the Brewster brothers put on like they put all their chips in to the middle of the table after. Uh, directing uh, Infinity War and Endgame, and they said, "Hey, we well, really want to do Cherry." Um, and yeah, this movie is really bad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's a mess. It's really really bad. Yeah, I tapped out on Cherry after I saw the poster uh, that made the title look like Chirk, uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, roasted quite a bit and then quickly removed and updated. Um, faster than Sonic the Hedgehog. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, it's really stupid too because the Tom Holland character basically he's like a cipher for, he's a stand-in for all soldiers who come back from war. It's really stupid. Like he barely doesn't have, he doesn't have a name pretty much. Um, but the one time he's kind of referred to as Cherry is, they do a terrible thing where. He sees his first person die in battle, so it's like, "Oh, you popped your cherry." So that's his name, and that's the name of the movie. It's terrible, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure, like the movie, like the, or the book, was a really big deal when it came out, and it seemed like it was very, like unfettered. It had no frills. It was like, "Hey, this is a really um, tragic story um, that has a lot of crazy interwoven parts," and it seems like. The Russo brothers took that and said, "Cool, I'm going to do a bunch of aspect ratio changes." <laughs> you know, like it. It seems like from what I'll, I haven't read the book, but from what I have read of it, it do, it does seem like they took just everything away from the core of the story and just tried to make it the super stylized Martin Scorsese like uh, camera swirling all around and doing all this crazy stuff, and they just didn't really understand, or I guess maybe just not get to the point of what the story is getting at because it's. Um, Tom Holland is really trying in this movie, but he's forced to deliver such ridiculous dialogue at times and all of like the stylistic choices just make him look really weird on on camera. Um, it just makes him look ridiculous when I feel like I feel like that he's trying and I feel like a better movie could prop him up and make him look really good. But um yeah, I just it's it's a mess. It's truly fascinating. It's like two and a half hours. Clearly, they, clearly the Rooster Brothers had no restraints. To, they just made the movie they wanted to make, and it's it's fat. It's really fascinating, but it's also one of the more messy movies you'll see. So, uh, yeah, um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just it's very bizarre, and now it exists, I guess. Um, yeah, I I don't really uh, ever plan on getting to this one. You know, I had the choice between Cherry and Tom and Jerry, and I I went with the latter. And, and you know my time with it probably wasn't was about as as rough, but um, I I've seen it. Um, and so Tom and Jerry is a cartoon that I've seen a ton of. Um, because I 
watched a lot of boomerang as a kid so i would just like watch old tom and jerry reruns um quite a bit and so before i just kind of tear this movie apart i do want to get the (laughs) animation style um because i do really like how things are animated so it reminds me a lot of the 2015 peanuts movie where everything is 3d animated and like it's updated um, but it never loses that 2d feel so it still feels true to the original work because um, the, the the old Peanuts cartoons have a very iconic animation style. Um, and so they, they found a way to update it and still be genuine with it. And I think Tom and Jerry did a phenomenal job with that as well. Um, and if you want to see that instead of watching the movie, you can watch some test footage they did uh, where they had Tom and Jerry dancing to uh, Ryan Gosling's numbers in What a Lovely Night from La La Land. <laughs> uh, it's way better than the movie um and really just kind of gives you a taste for what the animators are doing and i think what the animators did was terrific um my gripes with tom and jerry lie in what everyone else in the movie was doing um mainly the writers <laughs> and so i think the beauty of tom and jerry is that it's like it's one of the most simple cartoon plots like you know Bugs Bunny, um, or or uh, Dump, not Donald Daffy Duck, like any of the other Looney Tunes, like Hanna Barbera s characters are a little bit more complex. Like they're still '60s cartoon characters, so the goals are going to be catch the monster or make Wilma not mad at me anymore. But Tom and Jerry is just cat kill mouse. Um, <laughs> it's it's a very simple plot, and the beauty of it is watching that same plot over and over and over again and watching new ways for the animators to bring it to life. And with the movie, they kind of forget that simplicity. And it's this really complex, like, oh, Tom is actually being hired by a hotel employee who's not actually an employee to stop Tom so that this wedding for two characters that are really inaccessible and we don't care about goes well. And Jerry is just kind of vibing um, with his AirPods. And then... Is sometimes he's just kind of being a dick. Um, Sometimes he's just kind of hanging out and trying not to die. Um, But it's like it's it's way too complex for a movie about a cat trying to kill a mouse. And unfortunately, you spend like probably sixty or seventy percent of the movie with characters that aren't in the title. Um, Which I don't know about you, but when I go to see a Tom and Jerry movie, I would kind of hope that I, I spend time with Tom and Jerry. And you just you're not you're not there for Colin Jost. <laughs> I, I was not there for Colin Jost, who's like introductory scene is him playing like 40 virtual golf on a hotel room <laughs> screen <laughs> and complaining about how he can't throw a wedding big enough. Um, mm, so that's that's great character <laughs> development. <laughs> um, and then like Chloe Grace Moritz's character is just like. She starts off as like your typical like peppy New York teen, like out there to, you know, take on the world and live in the big city. Um, And then she's also sometimes a con man. And then sometimes like that good natured, like, I don't know, children's movie character. And so unfortunately, yeah, you spend most of the movie with them, um, which really takes away from, you know, Tom and Jerry. And then you really just. You don't even get a lot of opportunities for Tom and Jerry to do what they do best, which is chase each other. Um, Like the climax of this movie involves just a giant cartoon tornado 
that you can't really tell what's going on inside of it. Like it's literally just a bunch of dust clouds spinning in a circle. And if that doesn't excite you, there's still 15 more minutes of the movie after that. Um, it's it's not good. I can't recommend this. <laughs> just watch the clip from La La Land with Tom and Jerry in it, and just leave it there. It's don't don't do this to yourself. Yeah, we had a rough week of movie watching, man. It's weird because uh, so Tim Story directed Tom and Jerry, and I also watched this movie, but I gave up after like 30 minutes. So maybe I'll cut back to it at some point. Maybe not, but. Uh, <laughs> Like Tim Story directs this movie, and he's been around Hollywood for for forever. He did the two Fantastic Four movies for Fox. Uh, he did those Think Like a Man movies with uh, Kevin Hart. He did the Ride Along movies. Uh, he also did Shaft, the the latest, the newest Shaft, not the good Shaft from the seventies, but the one with Samuel L. Jackson. Or I guess that doesn't even narrow it down because he's in multiple Shafts. The, the one that came out like two years ago, <laughs> but um, he's just been around in Hollywood for the longest time. So. I guess kudos to him, but it seems like he's kind of he's more so a director for hire type, where he'll just come in and say in the studios, "Hey, we got this, we got this Tom and Jerry movie. We need someone to just shoot the script." And he's like, "I got you, fam." And he'll just do that. So it seems like he just is one of those guys who takes all the notes and just like makes the studio happy to make a movie. But um, hey, it's led to a very long career, so I guess you can't you can't complain with those results, you know. This movie also feels weird because part of the the thing with Tom and Jerry is they don't ever really interact with people. Um, they're kind of in that, uh, bringing it back to Peanuts, like in that Peanuts mode where you never really see the adults. So like Tom and Jerry, you'll occasionally get like, you know, you'll see like the ankles of like the mom or the maid or something, but humans are pretty removed. So it feels, you know, it's obviously very unbelievable in the sense that they're like bonking each other on the head and like the big... Ubu, what do you, what do you call that? Like <laughs> the big, like, I don't know, knot forms in their head and whatnot. <laughs> but it feels pretty believable because like there, no human ever really catches on. So it feels weird that you'd spend most of the movie with humans when they've never really been a part of these characters' stories, anyways. And it's also really disorienting because every other animal in this movie talks and talks a lot and talks way too much, except for Tom and Jerry. So it's really awkward when they're just like silent. Um, and then also trying to have a conversation with the human. Um, so yeah, I, I can't really recommend this. There is a pretty good, uh, Joker gag featuring Droopy the dog. Um, and like the opening sequence of the movie, which was pretty funny. That was pretty much the only time I laughed. Um, and actually Droopy was both times he appears was the only time I laughed. So talk about the most iconic character in this movie. It's Droopy the dog. Wait, we we buried the lead. This movie begins with pigeons breaking the fourth <laughs> wall and singing "Can I Kick It," and it's one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see in your life. Um, I thought I thought I had just like I'd like fallen into the sunken place from Get Out when I was watching that first episode, that first uh, part. I was like, "What the what the fuck is happening?" <laughs> this movie is the weirdest thing. Well, I was really worried when that Droopy the Dog poster showed up as Joker. Like, I liked the gag that it was, like, this semi-obscure cartoon character from the 50s, like, <laughs> dressed up like the Joker with one of those, like, classic society taglines. Um, so I was really worried they were going to go with the Scoob approach and be like, oh, what if what if this is really, like, the beginning movie for all the Hanna-Barbera spinoffs? Um, and so I'm glad they didn't do that and they at least had some restraint, but they should have had much, much more restraint 
with 85% of this movie. Well, the one that was the movie that was trying to do the Hanna Barbera universe was Scoob. Remember yeah. Scoob? <laughs> um, I still that movie is. I, I feel like they're that and Tom and January are of a piece where Warner Brothers was just sifting through all their their properties. Like, hey, what what are the kids like these days? What can we make? And it's like, hey, we got we got Scooby Doo and we got Tom and Jerry, and they're like, all right, go picture, and they just like went nuts and. They're two. I mean, I can't speak for the rest of Tom and Jerry, but from what you say, it sounds like it's the worst. But from the first thirty minutes of Tom and Jerry and all of Scoob, which I inexplicably watched, they're two of the most baffling uh, studio productions of the past two years. They're both just unbelievably insane. Like the end of Scoob ends with basically like the Hanna Barbera Avengers, and it's the most insane thing you've ever seen in your life. So uh, <laughs> I hope that. Warner Brothers uh, stops this sometime soon, please, for my sanity. Yeah, and I think like the biggest flaw is at least with Scooby Doo, like those have been stretched out into movies before, so you kind of see how you could make an hour and a half out of that kind of mystery. But like the the old Tom and Jerry shorts are like five six minutes a piece. Like these are not stories that are supposed to play out over an hour. And so I understand why you'd be like, yeah, we need to bring in all these human characters to make it you know more dynamic. Uh, but it just ends up taking the movie away from Tom and Jerry um, to the point where it's like, why are, why are these two cartoon characters even here? You could have just made a kid's movie with Chloe Grace Moritz and Michael Pena and uh, Ken Jeong, and it probably would have been pretty solid, but it, it is not. Yeah, man, I just I can't get over I, the, the asshole shot in Cherry. It's still, <laughs> it's still stuck in my head. There we had a rough week. In Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Um, believe it or not I was thinking of it um, when I was watching Cherry it's interesting because right this is Tom Holland's big um, I'm breaking away from the MCU I'm no longer this young kid I want to be this big gruff actor type Um, and I'm thinking because what are his his two big movies outside the MCU are uh, The Devil All the Time which I liked and quite I liked quite a bit it came out on netflix it has some problems with it but it's i think he's really good in it and he also does cherry and these two movies are two of the most like grimy uh like kind of non-super indie movies that of the last year so it seems like he's really trying to buck the trend of hey i'm spider-man with like hey watch watch all this adult shit that i can do isn't this wild (laughs) you're forgetting the impending chaos walking release uh at the end of this next week Oh yeah, that's right. He's in that too. Jeez. So I'm wondering what. Uh, I mean, it still has yet to take full shape, but I'm wondering what his career outside of the MCU will be because it seems like he's trying to shape his personality in a in a completely different way, and I don't know if it's quite uh, taking hold yet. Um. Yeah, he also like talked about it this week where he's like in no rush to leave the MCU because his contract is technically up after. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home in December, but he's like, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so he he's still got some some Marvel money to uh, bank on for a while. Well, yeah, because he's I'm he's basically the new um like headliner, right? Because um we don't have Robert Downey Jr. We unfortunately don't have Chadwick Boseman anymore. He's basically the guy. So I feel like at this point. 
Marvel Studios is like, yeah, what do you want for each movie? You want 50 million? Sure, we can make that happen. So maybe he doesn't make the most artistically stimulating movies the next few years, but he's going to make a shit ton of money. He's got, he's got the Uncharted movie coming out too. He's Nathan Drake, right? Yeah. So he's going to be all over the place. <laughs> um. So yeah, that is that is some, some Tom Holland <laughs> acting for you. Um, but we'll go ahead and move on to what we've been watching in general. Uh, so fortunately, I think all of these movies we're about to talk about were much better than the new releases we watched this weekend. Um, so I'll let you go ahead and dive in with your recent watches. Yeah, I needed a bit of a palate cleanser, but I've been doing a weird uh, little Keanu Reeves mini marathon recently. So a while ago, or I guess a week ago, I, I watched, I rewatched all of the uh, original Matrix movies, um, which I don't know about you, but I feel like I kind of ride a little bit for two and three and rewatching <laughs> them. It's been a minute and I feel like they have really interesting stuff in them. I would love to um air my grievances for all the um reasons why those movies are misunderstood but anyway um so uh the second the second half of this marathon is i'm in the middle of rewatching all the john wick movies and um yeah newsflash john wick movies are really good uh yeah i watched the uh the first one last night uh it's been a minute since i've rewatched the first one but it's just really, really good. And it's amazing. It's the John Wick franchise is one of the few actual surprises we've had in terms of big blockbuster franchises. Cause there was a time when this movie was going to go straight to VOD and Lionsgate was like, oh, we don't really know what to do with this. It's Chad Stahelski's never directed a movie before. He was just a stunt guy for Keanu Reeves for so many years, along with David Leach. And they didn't really know what to do with it. But then all of a sudden they're like, all right, we'll just put it out in theaters and see what happens. And obviously it's become one of the biggest non-MCU franchises since. Um, but it's just fun watching because all of these movies have gotten bigger and crazier with each one. Like the budget on two and three gets bigger and bigger and the stunts they do and all the crazy shit gets bigger and bigger as well. So you return to the beginning of this movie and the first like 15, 20 minutes of the original John Wick is just very depressing and sad. And just Keanu Reeves just misses his wife and gets the dog. And it's pretty emotional, honestly. And so when you look at um, all of these three movies and I think four and five, they're filming back to back, which is amazing for me, but um, just all of my interests there. But <laughs> when you look back at this, like emotionally charged uh pretty like subdued um intro to this world it kind of sets all this in place because right because all these movies take are basically happening right after each other so like the second movie happens right after the end of the first one then literally the third movie happens within like minutes of the second movie ending so i feel like when people go back and revisit the first john wick i feel like it does color the rest of the movies with a greater like emotional undercurrent because literally all john wick wants to do is grieve and just like think about his wife <laughs> and all these assholes <laughs> just won't let leave him alone so um yeah it's just john wick it's really good it's just it's it's lovely yeah i think i think john wick legitimately has gotten better every movie um and like the first 30 minutes of <laughs> the third movie is just like my favorite action sequence. Cause it's just insane. Like he sees 
killing people with horses. He's killing people with books. <laughs> it's literally the most amazing thing ever. The first 30 minutes of John Wick 3 are pure cinema. It's beautiful. Um, it's, uh... <laughs> there's a ho- it's horses. They're, they're picking the knives off the walls and throwing them at each other. It's the most amazing thing. And it's so funny because um, Chad Stahelski and David Leach were like, basically they ran out of money on the first movie, which is why they have... There's the weird kind of in the rain fight with Michael Nyquist at the end of that movie because they tried to do something. I think they had like a bigger car chase thing in mind at the end of that movie, but they just ran out of stuff. So they were like, uh, I don't know, John Wick, fight the uh, <laughs> fight the old dude. And then, the, then the movie was over. So um, in that sense, like the second John Wick is very much like, hey, we wanted to do all this cool stuff in the first movie, but we didn't have the money to do it. So now we do. So let's just do it again, but better. Uh, and you really do get that. It's one of the few movies that's like, it has all of the components of sequelitis where it's like, let's do all of it again, but we have a bigger budget and more control to do all the things we wanted to. Um, but it actually works. Like the, there's so many sequels where that, that follow that same kind of guidance and just are terrible and they're the worst things ever. But the John Wick 2 is just, it just is amazing. Um, one of my favorite scenes maybe besides the horse uh, sequence in John Wick 3 is in chapter 2 when Common and John Wick are just, or encounters are just like shooting. They're doing like the little like silencer shots with their like little pistols like when they're walking through the subway. <laughs> it's, like, it's like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to watching two and three, but it, it's always nice going back to the first one. Cause it's, I think it does have, um, a really good emotional undercurrent to it. Um, and it's Keanu, Keanu's the best. What a guy. Yeah. I think it's like just the most pure, <laughs> like Hollywood franchise that we have right now. Like there's, there's not a whole lot of like studio manipulation, like you don't really hear anything about problems coming out of it, like production wise, like they're just kind of quietly doing their thing. Everybody loves them. Critics and, and audiences alike when they come out, like they're just the one thing that everybody can seem to get behind. Yeah, it's it seems like I've, I've listened to a few interviews with Chad Stahelski and he's just a very passionate dude who says we're going to. We're going to get the cast together six months before we shoot so we can do all this crazy choreography. And that's why all the stunts look amazing. But yeah, so they just work really hard. They get it done. Um, it's cool. It's And then they built like the, the continental lore is like some of the coolest stuff. And that feels so organic. And especially in the first movie where they have all this stuff built up and you have all the coins and it all. It's, it's just so great. And it all just makes sense. And it doesn't feel like dumb and overblown like a lot of lore building is. And a lot of studio movies it's just all of it feels so natural and great it's just it's a lot of fun and the first movie too it does the really good screenwriting trick of not only like having characters explain the backstory of your lead character before you see it so like you automatically think whoa this dude's badass and he hasn't even punched anybody um but it also has the really good thing of people like all the dialogue is written where uh, they have a past they have a certain past with john wick so all of this feels like it's well it's a new adventure it's oh this is like the 15th time i've seen john wick do this so it feels like it's this really cool lived in world that i think is really in some ways subtly built quite nicely so it's just it's just so cool i i a while ago there's uh, there was an announcement that they were going to make a continental tv show 
which just sounds like the coolest thing. I really hope that happens. I hope that's still a thing because I would, I would watch that so hard. Yeah, and I think kind of on that note about that lived-in world, there are a lot of like characters that just come in and out um, that that don't have you know like oh we need to you know really build this person up so that you know they have this massive character arc. Um, but there are people that really just do serve the world um, that they're living in. So like uh, John Leguizamo's character and Thomas Sadowski's character in the first two, I think are good examples of that. So like Thomas Sadowski, I think he has the same line in one and two where he just like will show up because he's a cop. He's like, you working again, John? Yeah, it's and, the, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and then John will like say something and then he'll just walk off. And like, that's his, that's his purpose. But like, it, it really helps build like the myth of John Wick and just the totality of this world. Yeah. It's like, Oh, they've done this probably 150 times. It's, it's such, it's such smart screenwriting and it's, it's very, it's not, it's not minimalist, but it's just, we're doing, we don't we're not overblowing this character like this is just like another tuesday for him at the john wick household it's and the entire movie is built on that and then it creates this just amazing bit of like yeah this this assassin underworld it's been here for a while and john wick's been a big part of it um so you're just seeing the latest of a hundred and however many um episodes of it it's just it's just the best i i love these movies i love them so much i feel like for the years to come, I feel like all three of these movies, and hopefully four and five when those come out, are just going to be the movies I just rewatch the most. I think they're just so fun. And they have a lot of really good stuff to them. Obviously, the stunts are amazing, but I think the writing is really good. And Keanu Reeves is just, everyone likes Keanu Reeves. I mean, he's one of those guys, if you just don't like Keanu Reeves, I don't really know what we're doing. Like, he's like, that's just kind of a bad take, <laughs> you know? So it's just for, i think for the like the rest of my life i'll just be yeah, john wick these movies are dope poppy's in a few times a year <laughs> it's a great way to live a life just less cherry uh more john wick that's the way to go i agree um i did not watch anything as violent uh this week on <laughs> <laughs> uh but i watched Two really solid movies um, in particular. So the first one I want to talk about is All About Eve. Um, so I picked this up at a President's Day Blu-ray sale like a week and a half ago. Um, I actually picked both of these up um, through that. Because um, these are two fairly recognized movies that I wanted to get to. So with All About Eve, um, I really enjoyed um, because it was an actress, Betty Davis, who I'm not very familiar with. Um, it was a movie that I wasn't very familiar with either. Um, in in my mental image of it, I just kind of expected another Sunset Boulevard. Uh, fortunately, it was very, very different. Um, but this is a really biting movie about Hollywood. Um, and so, you know, researching just like some of the production of this movie and like uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, who was the nephew of Mank from the hit movie Mank. Uh, just talking about like how how much of a slap in the face this movie really was to the industry um because a lot of this movie is betty davis's character um lamenting just on how the industry treats aging actors and particularly how the how the industry treats women um so she's by no means an older woman she's like maybe 45 i think um in the movie because they they state her age specifically at one point um, so she's she's not an old woman, um, but she's like, I'm I'm not 30 anymore. Like, and, and now nobody wants me like I can't 
I have the talent and everybody's everybody's on board with me having the talent, but I don't have the looks, I don't have the body anymore, and so I'm just dead, basically. Um, so there's the, the conflict of this movie is between her character, Margot, being that fading star and the up-and-comer um, Eve, you know, since the movie is all about Eve, um, <laughs> and just, like, how Eve is forcing her way into this spot because she's younger, and even even if talent really isn't the issue, like, the industry is more biased towards the up and comer because they're young. Um, and so it's just a lot of Betty Davis's character reflecting on her legacy. And uh, before we were, we uh, started recording, we were talking about how um, the, her character in particular really reminds me of Rick Dalton in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because it's a lot of that similar sentiment of, you know, I used to be this huge star. Look at all these things I've done, but like, what am I doing now? Who who really cares what I'm up to now? I'm doing, you know, like back alley plays in uh, Minnesota in this movie or episodes is the heavy um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And so I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this movie a lot. Yeah, there's a there's a certain strain of um, kind of older movies from earlier Hollywood where it's kind of amazing like the ideas that they have in them cuz i was i think of casablanca which i watched for the first time like a few months ago and it's just amazing how m- much of a critique of, of war that movie is and it was made during world war 2 you look at some of these movies that now it's just like they just don't have the same teeth in what they're saying that a lot of these older movies do um which i find really fascinating sometimes but yeah, All About Eve is one I haven't checked out, and I actually don't have a lot of experience with Betty Davis as well, but um, I do think it is cool when you do get that first glimpse into um, an actor or an actress who has been built up in your in your mind's eye. Like I remember the first time I saw Humphrey Bogart in a movie, um, it was just like, well, <laughs> this guy, I get it now, you know? <laughs> so it is really cool whenever you get to rewatch or watch for the first time some of these classic things. It's just cool. It just really puts everything into perspective. Yeah, and it's it's nice to really see that side of it and it, it honestly kind of sucks a little bit like how much those themes and kind of those complaints that she has in that movie which came out in 1950 are still pretty relevant like <laughs> it should Yeah, you that watch easy. that and it's like, wow, <laughs> we have done nothing. <laughs> It shouldn't be that easy to draw that comparison to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, movies that are 60 years apart in creation. But it's like, no, they're struggling with the same issue because it hasn't it's like gotten prettier, but it hasn't really changed. Um, And that's actually a really good segue into the next movie I'm going to talk about, um, which is Do the Right Thing, uh, which is a Spike Lee joint. Um, Actually stars Spike Lee a lot more than uh, a lot of his other movies do. Um, but this this movie was tough to watch um, for similar reasons in the sense that this movie is 30 years old um, and there are, there are huge chunks of this movie that feel like something I've seen on the news like within the past year. Um, and, and especially like the, the movie climaxes with some really heavy hitting commentary uh, about like over policing of uh, African-American communities. And just like police brutality and, and police violence. And it just hits like extremely close to home for being a movie that came out 30 years ago. Um, and I, yeah, I, I can't gush on either of these movies enough um, for very different reasons. But 
but do the right thing just really struck a chord with me. Yeah, Spike Lee is just one of those directors where um, I feel like we don't give him enough credit for how prescient he is. Like, I feel he's always ahead of his time in the way that um, he talks about certain issues that come up in his films where, like, yeah, do the right thing. It's, it's like, like it's 40 or 30 years later and it's literally what's happening. And that's just like a running theme through all of his movies. He's just, I mean, yeah, this guy, this guy is Spike Lee. He's got, he's going places. (laughs) He's he's got that dolly shot. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was, it was really good. And I haven't seen a ton of Spike Lee. So I've seen what are probably considered his big four. Um, So, so this movie, Malcolm X, uh, which I just saw for the first time, uh, two or three weeks ago uh, when the black Klansman and um, the five bloods. And I, I think he's like slowly becoming one of my favorite directors. Um, he's definitely somebody I want to jump into more. Yeah. He has a few that I mean, I, I love. He got game. He got game. I think is amazing um, with Denzel. And uh, uh, it's just, it's one of those, I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. So when I'm not watching movies, I'm probably watching basketball. So I think that movie hits real home, and it has um, Ray Allen, who's an all-time NBA, uh, Hall of Famer player, who's in that movie as well. His character's name is Jesus Shuttleworth, which is just hilarious. But um, he's really good in it. Um, Spike actually finds a good performance out of him, which is really impressive. And it's cool because when they actually do basketball, it's like, oh, it's Ray Allen. He's one of the like one of the best shooters in the history of basketball. So he looks good while he does it. And Denzel played basketball in college, so when he gets to shoot, he actually looks pretty good as well. But yeah, that movie is, is really good. And I think that's, that's another one where it's talking about like people in college using their likeness and be able to profit off their name. And it's like, these are things that still aren't resolved today. And it's, it's such a, like a smart idea and it really captures it so well. Um, It's just, it's, he's always ahead of its time. So I feel like there's a few guys like that. I feel like Steven Soderbergh is always like, we kind of pass along his movies, but then we look at back at them 15 years later. And it's like, Oh, these movies were really, really smart and way ahead of their time. Like we look at like contagion now and it's a, wow, that movie basically <laughs> is COVID-19. And there's like his movie is, his filmography is riddled with movies like that where he's just a really smart filmmaker, but yeah, it's just spike. He's just, he's the best. He's so good. I, uh, I also want to share what might be the most wholesome interview moment of all time. Uh, so this was from a, a written interview uh, right before the five bloods was coming out where a bunch of people on the internet were just sending in Q and A's for spike to answer. So uh, Mike Lee is a British director who directs a lot of like grimy Londony crimes. Um, he's like the, the like he's like, he's very big in Britain is what I'm trying to say. Uh, <laughs> but he's like the British crime guy. Um, and so his question was, occasionally I get mistaken for you. Have you ever been mistaken for me? Because Mike Lee and Spike Lee rhyme. And so uh, Spike Lee's response, what's up, Mike, my brother? I haven't had the honor yet. Peace and love. And it's just the most wholesome, like, <laughs> little director <laughs> exchange. Yeah, it's just, I like Spike, is, he's, just, he's just one of those directors. His movies are going to just live on for forever. It'll be like when we, like when we're old and like people will still be studying and talking about Spike Lee movies because they're just all of them are just so fascinating. There's a few I really want to catch up with too that are apparently really good. Um, I've never seen Crooklyn, which is one I really want to watch. 
Um, there's a bunch of them. Chirac is another one. Um, he's just this really smart guy. I mean, in Black Klansman, there's just like there's just so much stuff going on in that movie and so many different ideas. It's just he's never he's never one uh, to shy away from anything. Uh, it's just it just makes his movies that much more interesting. I agree. He also had one of the best dance scenes of all time in uh, Defy Bloods. So <laughs> Got to give credit to that one more time. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is uh, that is Spike Lee. Um, and that is this week's episode of the Movie Bible Podcast. Um, so we've got quite a month coming up. Uh, we got Ray and the Last Dragon um, coming up this week. We've got Coming to America, Chaos Walking, um, Sponge Out of Water, depending on where you live. Um, so it's it's getting to be a busy month uh, movie-wise. So we'll be here talking about it. Uh, remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com. 